This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, August 1st. And now, please rise for the singing of our Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the F in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Peter's twin brother, Paul Elliott. As Paul mentioned, we are twin brothers from Champaign, Illinois. And this is a weekly baseball podcast coming to you from our uh, refurbished studios. Yeah, revamped. I don't know if refurbished. Had to move a table. Yeah, we've got a new table. Got a new table. So yeah, I got a cool vibe going in our studios now. Yeah, our... Aspiration is uh, Bill Simmons, uh, his studio, if you've ever seen a picture of his. but uh, Paul, how's it going? It's going well. It's been an eventful baseball week. Yeah. The Cubs Sox and then uh, a slew of trade activity. Yep, the Cubs and Sox split. They each won the two games at their, mm-hmm. their park. So home team won each game. Um, what did you make of the Crosstown showdown? You know, this year I didn't feel quite as much um, excitement about the actual matchup. I mean, they were still fun games to watch. Really? I thought there was more, way more than recent years. See, as a White Sox fan, I just didn't... In typical years, like if both teams are about equal, there's kind of like a, you know, you're determining who the better team is. This year, like I know the White Sox are far worse, and so there, there really wasn't anything in me like... But... Here's a, a sign that there was way more anticipation around it. Uh, I went to Cubs White Sox game in 2014, um, and there was maybe 25,000 fans there. wasn't even close to full, and the White Sox sold out both of their games. Yeah, the, I mean the Cubs. Year. The Cubs are better. Well, and the White Sox are 500. It's not like they're awful. Yeah, but um, and you had the sales stuff and the uh, Chapman trade. I thought, um, I thought those games were. High energy, yeah. Anticipated, yeah. Maybe I'm the outlier as a Sox fan, but um, uh, I was shocked. James Shields shut you guys out. Yeah, game two. He's pitched. Uh, I mean, the deeper numbers don't really back it up, but he has pitched well the last month or so. He has, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, <laughs> with everything going on with Chris Sale, less less people care about uh, James Shields in that trade. All right. Well, uh, thanks to Nelly for our intro song. Our Nelly fun fact this week is that he appeared on an episode of CSI New York as uh, gangster Terrence Davis. So uh, here is a clip from his appearance. Yeah, I know that already. Do we have a location on these guys? Nothing. I'm heading into a briefing right now with the boss. I'll be there as soon as I'm done. Hey, bro. Not now. Paper. What the hell are you doing? I told you we were done. Yeah, man. I'm trying to help you, thick head ass. If you try to answer my calls, I wouldn't have to be out here slumming like some damn fool. I got no time for you right now, Terrence. You got time for some dope on those cop killers? I seen what happened on the news, man. The cop that got shot. The girl you were on the phone with. That was your girl, right? What do you got for me? An Italian named Crazy Tony came into the club writing about how he helped trick out a hummer for those mugs who snuck the girl. What else? Put a couple of traps in my escalator back in the day, so they definitely equipped to trick out a Hummer like that. All right? Now, I don't think Tony's running with those Rambo dudes, but the damn sure should know who they are. Tony got a last name and address? Read the class. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.
Paul, did you follow that? Uh, not really. <laughs> I've never watched CSI. Not, not never like one episode. Yeah, it seems like the Applebee's of crime TV. It's shows. ridiculously popular, though. Is New York the most popular? Isn't there like a CSI Miami? Yeah, I think Miami is the most popular. All right. So yeah, thanks to Nelly. Um, before we get to the trade deadline stuff, uh, Paul, our Matt Bush update. <clears throat> um, he's had seven appearances since the All Star break. Six of them were scoreless. Uh, but he did give up four runs in an appearance on Wednesday. Uh, he gave up two two-run homers to Chris Davis and Coco Crisp against the A's. Uh, he came in, and the Rangers were up 4-2, to two, gave up the lead on the two two-run homers. Only pitched a, th- uh, a third of an inning. Uh, so that wasn't good, but uh, seems like they still trust him. Uh, he's pitched in a couple games since then in the eighth inning. Yeah, it sounds like they be, might be moving for Lucroy too. Yeah, good transition into the trade deadline. Um, We're recording this, obviously, a day before the actual deadline. So a lot of what we say might, you know, be outdated tomorrow. So we'll we'll try to stay away from speculating on where guys will go. The stuff that has happened, of course, the Cubs traded for Aroldis Chapman. We covered that on the last podcast. As a Cubs fan, very conflicted. Uh, I wrote a blog post on our website, footinthebox.com, so you can go check that out. Uh, has a lot of different perspectives on it that uh, that I agreed with. I'm curious, as we're talking about Chapman, uh, yesterday he gave up the lead in the eighth. It's delightful. I was going to ask, when he does poorly, is that good for you? or Kevin and I um, were texting back and forth, and, yeah, we loved it. It's a really weird situation. I'm sure if the you know something was on the line, so if... If the Cardinals uh, were closer to the division lead, uh, which they're getting closer, they're only five and a half out now. But if they're getting closer, if the a playoff spot was on the line or something like that, I'm sure we wouldn't be rooting for that. But um, yeah, something we're inside of us. We were just rooting against Chapman. Um, I feel like I'm rooting for him just to get humbled. Uh, the thing that maybe bothers me most about him is just his arrogance, and uh, some of that might get lost with the translation stuff. You're not really sure what his tone is when he says certain things. Uh, but it doesn't seem like he's too remorseful uh, or even self-aware mm-hmm. uh, to know some of the stuff that he's done. Uh, so, yeah, that we did enjoy that. I, I guess my dream scenario, he came in the eighth, gave up the lead. Uh, Rizzo came up in the bottom of the eighth, could have taken the lead on a three-run homer. If he did that, you know, that's kind of like a dream scenario. Chapman blows the game, but the Cubs still win. Yeah, well, I, uh, probably a dream scenario for you would be like pulled hamstring out for the next two months. Yeah, Kevin. Kevin's dream scenario is Chapman either gets in trouble with the law, would immediately kind of get suspended, or the Cubs would just be embarrassed um, by the decision to get him, and then, or yeah, he gets hurt and is done for a while. Um, I would add a third one to that: that if he gave uh, emotional, authentic apology, uh, then I would also feel like I could root for him hmm. more authentically. And what made, I guess, the Chapman trade worse for Kevin and I was that uh, uh, two other really good closers of kind of Chapman's level got traded this past week. Andrew Miller on Sunday morning got dealt to the Indians, and uh, Mark Melanson of the Pirates got dealt to the Nationals, who were very desperate for uh, a closer. So Chapman and Melanson are both three-month rentals, and then Miller is signed, I believe, through uh, 2018. Yeah, two more years. Um, on, a, on a pretty good deal. Uh, I think $9 million a year. Uh, 
They, I feel like the Cubs definitely could have got Melanson for what they gave up for Chapman. Sure. That's without question. So would you have done? That well, trade? so I that was a poll question we did on Twitter, and it was pretty much split right down the middle. Um, Chapman has the higher kind of upside this year, more dominant, of course. With my personal mm-hmm. kind of thoughts and morals, I would go with the Melanson deal. But I mean, Chapman is more dominant. Um, and even if you compare Chapman to Miller, uh, the Indians gave up more to get Miller. If, would you have done, um, the Indians gave up two top 100 prospects. So would you have done like Torres and Ian Happ? Um, oh, sure. I would have done, I would have done it knowing that they're, the Cubs were like dead set on getting the lefty reliever. So either Chapman or Miller. And the alternative was Chapman. I would have given up Schwarber for Miller. Wow. I'd been advocating that for a little while. Yeah, I just I didn't know that those were kind of the stakes. I would rather have done nothing, but you know, if they're dead set on getting one of them, then mm-hmm. I really so, like what the um, what the Yankees have done. Oh yeah, I think very anti-Yankees, but uh, they've flipped Chapman and Miller for um, for really. I mean, you could throw in Castro because they got back the pitcher they traded yeah, for. Yeah, he's been. He hasn't been that effective this year. But they, you know, Castro, two top 100 prospects, um, and Torres, and uh, Clint Frazier from the Indians, Mm -hmm. and then uh, another top 100 pitcher from the Indians. Yeah, and I've got more on that in my out-of-the-box, so we'll we'll tease that. A note on the Indians getting Miller, he's now their highest-paid player, just above uh, Jason Kipnis, uh, makes around $9 million a year, and uh, it's the most expensive contract they've ever traded for. Wow. Wow. that's shocking. And uh, it looks like the fans are, are um, supporting the Indians now, and so maybe that gave them in mm-hmm. front office incentive to, to go after uh, a guy like Miller. And even, I mean, they tr- they agreed to a trade with Lucroy, but he turned them down. Um, but uh, Cleveland had 33,000 fans on Friday and Saturday night, um, and then that brings them up to over 19,000 for the season, which is still pretty low, but... I think they were around 15,000 uh, average earlier this year. So funny that uh, ESPN comes out with a 30 for 30 documenting this uh, disaster that Cleveland sports have been for the last 50 years, and now they are in, like, sports heaven. Yep. Cavs win the finals. Yeah, the I guess that are... means the Browns will do well in the NFL yeah. this year. Uh, Paul, you know, say you're in the Cubs position, which you have traded for Miller, Chapman, or Melanson. Hmm. Um... I guess Melanson. Um, I, yeah, I I don't really see the need for uh, a lefty. Like it seems like whoever they were trading for was going to be their kind of their cl- quote unquote closer. Well, Travis Wood sucks. Yeah, but it, they're not using Chapman uh, as a situational lefty. Last so, two games they brought him in to face lefties. Well, yeah, but in the eighth. So unless you know, uh, you know, the Nationals are kind of the team that everyone talks about. So unless. Murphy and Harper are coming up in the eighth or the ninth inning. They're probably not going to pitch Chapman. Yeah, I guess that's the biggest question is in a playoff game if Harper and Murphy yeah, Murphy uh, hit in the eighth, will they bring Chapman in for the eighth and then Rondon for the ninth? It's kind of yet to be determined. I wonder how Chapman would respond to that. Yeah, I'm thinking that well. But <laughs> Melanson's really, really good. I think he's kind of an under-the-radar type guy. Yeah. Um, doesn't throw... Obviously, doesn't throw as hard as Chapman, but even probably throws below average for an average closer. And uh, 
but uh, he's been really, really effective for the last few years. Yep. Uh, Jonathan Lucroy, as we mentioned, used his no trade to uh, block a trade to the Indians. Looks like the Rangers are going to get him. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like a good move for the Rangers. Yeah, and it, it seems like what I'm really curious about is if the Rangers are going to um, tear up his team option for next year. Because that, um, from what I was reading, that was kind of the turning point with the Indians. He had The only leverage he really had was to use his no-trade clause to convince the team that he was being dealt to. to so he's not gonna, his contract for next year is a team option? Right. Um, and it's not very much? No, it's cheap, really cheap. Um, so maybe he would agree to like an extension before... Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, other trades that have happened, Andrew Kashner went to the Marlins. Uh, I mentioned this because he had to shave his beard because Don Mattingly has the no facial hair policy. And um, we, uh, I retweeted it from our Twitter account. He looks a lot different. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it does not. I forgot Mattingly had that rule. It's kind of r- like ridiculous. Yeah. And let's not forget... The White Sox trade Zach Duke to yep. the Cardinals. They got a decent player. Yeah, Charlie Tilson. What's interesting is he was the 12th rated prospect in the Cardinals system. He's now the 5th best prospect nice. in the White Sox system. He's from the Chicago suburbs, right? Yeah, same high school as the White Sox general manager. All in the family. Yeah, but he's immediately going to uh, come up and play uh, center field. But he's going to mm-hmm. be on the White Sox? Yeah, activated. Was he in AAA Marcy. then? Yeah. The okay. Um, which, yeah, that's a, a great haul. Is Duke just a rental? Uh, no, he signed next year too. Okay. Was he that good with the White Sox? Yeah, he's very, uh, I wouldn't say he was very good, but he's decent. Okay. You got any other trade stuff? Like a few other notes, but. Uh, no, I think I'm good. Uh, not, don't want to mention the Kemp. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, trade. that's worth talking about. Uh, a few notes that I had. Jacoby Ellsbury reached base for the 10th time on a catcher's interference call. On, in Saturday's game, um, so of course, catcher's interference is when you hit the catcher's glove with your bat. You automatically get first base. Uh, I believe when he did it for the ninth time, that was a record. So he's just adding to that now. I went back and watched the replay. <clears throat> uh, the catcher is very upset, but it doesn't look like an intentional thing that Ellsbury does. Uh, it just kind of has like a looping swing and stands pretty far in the box. Um, so I thought that was. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Seems, seems getting back to our on-base discussion from a, maybe like a month ago. This seems like a weird talent, but um, it wouldn't be included in on-base percentage. Yeah, probably should be. Well, and I'm sure there's kind of like books on certain catchers that like get pretty close. Sure. And so you kind of know uh, if you're kind of coming up with a guy back there who's maybe a little bit closer to the, the hitter than mm-hmm. other guys. Yep, uh, Ellsbury has four more seasons of $21 million a year, by the way. That's crazy. Yeah, so for all the good that the Yankees are doing now, they've got a long ways to go. Exactly. Uh, the Mariners and Cubs play on Sunday Night Baseball. It's the first time the Mariners have played on Sunday Night Baseball since 2004. Wow. 12 years. How long has Sunday Night Baseball been going? I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, but that was pretty surprising. I think Felix Hernandez pitches. Maybe a future... Um idea for a segment i'm curious is sunday night baseball like still a thing like do people more people watch sunday night baseball than say like fox's saturday night game or yeah it's definitely the highest rated national would it be more uh highly rated than like the tuesday wednesday night games yeah espn does definitely interesting uh the last one i had uh 
not from the States, from Japan. Uh, Shohoi Otani, probably butchering that. Uh, Japanese player, he is a pitcher and a hitter, he DHs. Uh, he has a 1.1 OPS, which is the highest in Japan, and a 2.01 ERA with 140 strikeouts and 116 innings. So he's he's essentially the best hitter and pitcher in Japan, and I believe he's only 22 years old, 21, 22. Uh, so be on the lookout for him to come over to the States and uh, maybe uh, be the first two-way player. That would be fun. Yeah, like, I mean, that's Babe Ruth essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Ruth didn't pitch still when he he but, sta- like when he became a good hitter. He stopped right, pitching. Yeah. I think a, a team like the A's could like guarantee him both. Maybe that would mm-hmm. be incentive for him to pick them over other mm-hmm. teams that could offer more money. Uh, one other thought I had before we jump into our segments. Uh, last night uh, I was watching the White Sox game, and on back-to-back plays they committed four errors. Uh, so there was a, a ground, the white, the white Sox. Yeah. Ground ball to short. Uh, the throw to first was, um, was dropped by Abreu. So it's air number one. It was uh, Byron Buxton. So he reached on an air. He then stole second on the next pitch. Navarro threw the ball into center field. The center fielder overran the ball and Buxton tried to score on it and the throw beat him to home, but then Navarro dropped the ball. So I was curious Maybe a question for you and our listeners. Uh, ideas on how to assess like the worst defensive play or inning of all time. I'd be curious at like the the maximum amount of errors or like the worst possible. It's hard for me to imagine a play having more than three errors. So he reached for space on an error, and then on the, the next play had steal three attempt, There was the throw to center was an error. The o- overrunning it was an error, and then the throw home. Should have been caught. Was an error. It was caught, but then it fell, fell out of his glove when he tagged. So that was an error on the catcher. Yes. Um, so I was curious, like what? I, I couldn't think of a better. There's probably not too many times a player has, well, two errors on the same play. Well, a catcher. I was thinking, probably pretty rare that a catcher has two errors because, like, a first baseman could, you know, drop a ball at first and then the guy goes to second and a bad throw or something like that. Right. Or like a left fielder uh, botches a ball. And then makes a bad throw into the right. But for a catcher to have two, maybe like a, a pass ball, and then a bad throw. Mm-hmm. So if if you have any ideas out there, if you'd like to do the <laughs> research, let us know. All right. So on our podcast this week, we're going to first do our baseball TV segment, um, and then out of the box, TWTW, uh, sounds of the game. We have an interview this week, right, Paul? Yes, we interviewed Grant McCauley. Uh, he's a radio host in Atlanta. Talked to him about the Braves and their rebuild. Um, being a White Sox fan, I'm really curious kind of the psychology behind the rebuild and especially kind of the fans' reaction. Mm-hmm. So I thought Grant would be a, a great resource for that. Definitely. Uh, and then we've got bottom of the ninth. But first, our baseball TV segment. Uh, the segment, it's in the second week. Uh, we take a look at one episode of a TV show where baseball is a core theme. Uh, Paul, this was your selection, so I'll let you set it up. Sure. So we picked the Andy Griffith Show. Um, you picked. I picked, yes. Uh, the title of the episode was The Ball Game. It's uh, in Season 7, Episode 4, and it is on Netflix if you'd like to go watch it. 
uh, it's a really good episode. I'm not a huge Andy Griffith show <laughs> fan, but uh, it was entertaining. Watched it with my wife last night. Um, so essentially, the plot: uh, the Mayberry Little League team has a big game coming up. Uh, apparently, it has some sort of playoff ramifications. If they win, they go on to the next round in Richmond, which kind of sounded like a big deal the way they were talking about it. Kind of Little League World Series type. Yes. Uh, Andy's son, Opie. Uh, Who is Ron Howard. Do you know that? Yes. He, it's nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. He uh, And we did uh, Arrested Development last week. So Yeah, bring it all together. Director of that show. He was, You know, he was the director of Apollo 13. I did not know that. And A Beautiful Mind. Wow. Talented individual. And Parenthood. So Ron Howard, Opie, plays on this team. And the day before the game, Andy gets a phone call asking if he can umpire, uh, the home plate umpire who is scheduled, uh, has some sort of illness or can't do it. So Andy reluctantly says yes. Uh, they kind of view him as like one of the fairest people in town. He's the, the town, sheriff. Yeah, town sheriff. So they think he's going to do a good job. Uh, he's the home plate umpire for the game. Uh, it's six to five, real close game going into the bottom of the last inning. Uh, Opie comes up with two outs, and everyone knows where this is going. He hits a long fly ball to center field, not over the fence though. Has a chance at an inside the park homer. Uh, there's a bang bang play at the plate, and uh, Andy calls him out. Uh, very controversial. Uh, the town essentially shuns him afterwards. Uh, over time, they forgive him, but then at the end of the episode, uh, Andy's girlfriend, who was at the game, uh, reveals that she took a picture of the play at the plate that shows that Opie was safe. Uh, so he got the call wrong. But she only reveals that to one person, and then she tears the picture up. Right. Um, so uh, I don't know if there was a moral to the story. Uh, instant well, re- I guess sports- instant replay is sportsmanship, good. Sportsmanship, yeah. Um, the clip I want to play is... Um, a, uh, it's kind of Andy's breaking point. A lot of the locals are still complaining about the, the call, at a local establishment, and Andy snaps on him. Andy, why don't we go over to the diner and get a bite, Okay. Floyd, will you quit harping on the hit-and-run play? It's what Casey Stingle would have done. Well, Coach, you didn't lose that game today. It was an umpire by the name of Andy Taylor. Don't make him that name. Well, I don't know. I didn't see that play too clear from where I was sitting. Well, take my word for it, Howard. He is safe. And when you write your column for the Mars paper, you ought to let the people know that we was robbed. Chance to go to Raleigh right out the window. I was saying there sure is a lot of people walking around who need eyeglasses. Strong ones. I've had about all of this I'm going to take, so let's clear it up right now. Now, I didn't want that umpire's job to start with, but you all insisted that I'd be fair. Well, you didn't want a fair umpire. You wanted somebody that would be on your side and give you all the breaks. Well, let me tell you something. You picked the wrong fella. And I'll tell you something else. If we played that game over again tomorrow, you'd still have the wrong fella because I called it the way I saw it. And if you'd act like adults instead of a bunch of soy-head kids, you'd know it. 
Come on, Helen. So that's uh, that was the Andy Griffith show. I the, will say the, the column they make it sound ominous. The column actually was about sportsmanship. Right, know, everyone should give Andy a, a pass, even if he did miss the call. The episode reminded me of a ESPN the magazine article that came out a couple years ago. We can link to it in our um, podcast episode page, but kind of goes in depth about uh, umpires and the perils of the job. Uh, and just a funny fact, not really funny, but crazy stat. Uh, by the end of the 1920s, at least 10 umpires had been killed or mortally wounded on the field. Really? On the field. Uh, in, 19, in 1911, a semi-pro player in Georgia walked off the bench with a pistol and shot the umpire over a dispute about the score. <laughs> so we've come uh, a long ways. Wow. Um, I would say, uh, without question, the worst call I've ever seen was the Jim Joyce Armando Galarraga um, play at first base. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, that, that's probably a future like blog poster segment, the worst calls of all time. Yeah. All right. Um, that was Baseball TV. Uh, next up, we have Out of the Box. All right. Uh, the article that I want to talk about this week was by Jay Jaffe of uh, Sports Illustrated. The title of the article is No Take Backs, Six Midseason MLB Trades That Ended Up Costing Too Much. Essentially, it's just uh, Jaffe coming up with um, six trades where contenders dealt prospects that turned out to be really good for players uh, that um, just provided a real short-term boost. Um, so I'll go through a couple of them that I thought were interesting. Uh, first one uh, is in 1988, the Yankees traded Jay Buhner um, to the Mariners for Ken Phelps. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, Phelps was a 33-year-old um, lefty swinging slugger uh, who did okay for the um, for the Yankees the rest of the year, um, but obviously Buner went on to be a great player, best friend of Ken Griffey Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of uh, 10 players in history to hit at least 40 homers in three straight seasons. How many players have been that? Uh, 10. Really? Yeah. I figured it was more than that. Um. So from 1991 to 97, he hit 224 homers, um, was a great player. So uh, obviously in retrospect, not a great trade. And uh, if you're familiar with Seinfeld, mm-hmm. they uh, there's a, f- a fairly famous scene that we will play uh, later in the episode Yes, that talks about that trade. Uh, a couple other ones that I thought were interesting. Um, the Expos traded Cliff Lee, Brandon Phillips, and Grady Sizemore to the Indians for Bartolo Colon. That was in 2002. Um, at the time, the Expos thought they had an outside chance. They were six and a half back in the National League uh, right before the deadline. That's when they still had Vlad Guerrero. So they had some pieces, but they ended up not making the playoffs, um, despite Clone actually pitching really well. He was 10-4 and four with a 331 ERA down the stretch, um, but they finished below 500, and obviously Cliff Lee, Brandon Phillips, and Sizemore all went on to have mm-hmm. – uh, really good big league careers. Um, in 2007, the Braves traded Elvis Andrews, 
uh, Natalia Feliz, Matt Harrison, and Jared Salthamakia to the Rangers for Mark Teixeira. Teixeira was actually pretty amazing down the stretch with the Braves that year. Uh, he hit uh, 337 with 17 homers in 240 plate appearances. Um, but he was a free agent after the season, and Andrews, Feliz, and, and Harrison all were really, really good. Um, Feliz was an all-star and one rookie of the year. Uh, Andrews has also been an all-star, and Harrison was a really good starter. And then last, and this will probably hit a sore spot for you, Pete, uh, the Cubs traded uh, for Rich Harden in 2008. Do you know who they gave up? Uh, Donaldson. Josh Donaldson. Who, Is he a catcher at the time? Yes. He was a – I didn't realize – so I, I kind of knew this trade happened, but I didn't know that Donaldson was a first-round pick. I didn't either. Yeah, he was a supplemental first-round pick, a catcher at the time. Uh, but he was kind of a throw-in to the trade. So, like, end of the first round? Right. Uh, Harden was awesome. He had a 177 ERA and 12 starts down the stretch. Um, what year was this? 2008. He wasn't very good in the playoffs in his one start. And uh, But, obviously, Donaldson won MVP last year and has been a spectacular player for the uh, A's and Blue Jays. Yep. So, what uh, trade was worse, that one or the... Uh, A's trading him to the Blue Jays. I would say the A's trading him to the Blue Jays. But, yeah, I, I started to think about kind of trades that have happened this year, and I, it seems like teams have gotten quite a bit smarter when they deal prospects at getting more than just kind of a, a three-month eh, I don't know. I, I feel like this year more than most, uh, teams have been a lot more risk, like, really? uh, risky. Like the Cubs gave up a ton for Chapman. Uh, the Nationals gave up Cub, a The few Cubs good gave up a lot, but, I mean, Torres is – Three or four years away. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, the other pieces in the Yeah, trip. I guess I just read some tweets and articles about how teams, it's, uh, we've, we've kind of moved back in the direction where teams are willing to trade again, where there were several years where teams were really yeah. reluctant to trade prospects. I think what we're seeing is far more guys dealt in the year before their, two years before they were free agents. So not as many rentals. Right. Okay. Uh, my article, uh, comes from the New York Times, Billy Witts. Uh, wrote it. It's Monday, July 25th, and the title is Solving the Yankee Equation, One Number at a Time. <clears throat> uh, so the article is about Michael Fishman, who is the assistant GM for the New York Yankees. Uh, he was hired in 2005, four years after graduating top of his class at Yale, uh, has a bachelor's degree in mathematics. When he was hired in uh, 2005, uh, he made up the whole analytics department for the Yankees, um, and now it includes a couple dozen people. And so the article just tracked uh, kind of his time with the Yankees and um, how the Yankees are looking at analytics now. Uh, so the Yankees have actually invested a ton in analytics without much attention. Uh, you've got books written about the A's, of course, with Moneyball. You've got um, Jonah Carey's book about the Tampa Bay Rays, and then um, there's a book written on the Pirates, um, Big Data, Baseball, yep. Uh, but the Yankees are probably the, the team that has invested the most in analytics. ESPN did a rankings last year of all pro sports teams and how they view analytics, and they the Yankees ranked 6 out of 122. Um, but they haven't got much attention for doing so, and it's most likely because they have such a high payroll and you wouldn't, you know, it's not a, uh, not really a sexy story um, 
when teams like the Yankees and Dodgers do it, but when cash-strapped underdogs do it, it's a it's a bigger deal. Uh, but some things that uh, kind of show the Yankees' uh, investment in analytics. Um, this year, their pitching staff is first in strikeout-to-walk ratio, and um, that's first in all of baseball. And then they're also first in the American League in ground ball percentage. Um, they're also much more aggressive at the plate in 2016, something that the analytics team wanted them to do. Last year, they were third in baseball in pitches per at-bat. And um, with essentially the same lineup, again, in 2016, they have dropped to 25th hmm. uh, in I'll, baseball. I wonder, is that like for the Yankees, the players, the specific players the Yankees have, they want them to be more aggressive? Or would that would they say that that's a, a trend across baseball that needs to be reversed? Because last year we talked yeah, about I don't, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just know that hitters that were much more selective last year have become much more aggressive this year for the Yankees. Yeah, that seems to be a reversal from like a trademark of the Moneyball era. But the, like the Royals, for instance, won the World Series, uh, not taking many pitches. Yeah, true. Um, so getting back to Fishman, uh, he kind of makes up this analytics department as the head of it, uh, as assistant GM uh, to Brian Cashman. He started following sabermetrics at uh, age seven, so he's just a crazy genius. Uh, by nine, he was developing his own formulas for evaluating players' values. Wow. Him and his friends are huge into Stratomatic, uh, something Paul has tried to get me into um, without much success thus far. Failed birthday present a couple years ago. I think I still have it somewhere. Uh, Fishman was a huge Mets fan growing up and also a whiz on the high school math team. Um, out of college in 2001, uh, he couldn't find a job in baseball. Baseball teams were hiring analytics people, so he took a job as an actuary. Uh, and then, of course, Moneyball came out, and so teams were much more willing to hire analytics people. Uh, he interviewed with the A's at the 2004 winter meetings. That specific job went to Farhan Zayadi, who's now the GM of the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was hired by Brian Cashman with the Yankees during the 2005 season. Uh, Fishman, while with the Yankees, became really good friends with Billy Epler, who is the GM of the Angels now. Um, Epler was more on the scouting side. Fishman was on the analytics side. Uh, so the the big kind of uh, area now that uh, is being talked about within the Yankees is how players um, react to analytics. And so it has a few quotes from Chase Headley in the article. And one that I thought was good was um, this one. Headley says, people off the field can have a legitimate impact on the field. Whether that's a good thing or bad thing, I don't know, but that's where we're at. Either you embrace it or you're not going to be around, because that's the way the game is going. Um, yeah, one kind of tidbit in the article is uh, when Goose Gossage made all the uh, press about how um, you know the nerds are ruining baseball, analytics people is ruining baseball, people that never played before. Uh, one of the analytics um, interns was like walking through the clubhouse, and one of the players shouted at him, "Hey, nerd! He's talking about you." Uh, so it just kind of shows how far they are from um, how far some players are from embracing analytics, even though you've got a ton of people employed by by the teams. Mm-hmm. And get, I guess getting into what the the um, Yankees have done at the deadline this year, um, you mentioned earlier how you really like it. I would totally agree. Uh, they traded. Um, Andrew Miller and Chapman, both dominant relievers, but they're just relievers. Um, they turned those into 
uh, Glebar Torres, who is 34, uh, 34th ranked prospect, and then Clint Frazier, who is tw- the 26th ranked prospect in all of baseball. And they already have Aaron Judge and Jorge Mateo, who are the 25th and 29th ranked prospects in all of baseball. So that means they have the 25th, 26th, 29th, and 34th now. Uh, Judge and Frazier, uh, Judge is an outfielder, Frazier is also an outfielder, um, will probably be in the majors next year or even to end this year. And both of them have really um, great approaches at the plate, high on base percentage. Um, so the Yankees should be poised to, to rebound pretty quickly here. Uh, Torres and Mateo are a little further away. Um, they also have Gary Sanchez, who's a catcher, who also should be up next year if they can find a spot for McCann elsewhere. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the article. We'll link to it in the podcast episode page. Um, but yeah, the Yankees are embracing analytics they have for a while, and Michael Fishman is at the front of it. All right, well, that was out of the box. Next up, we have TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right. Uh, for our TWTW segment today, we are going to look at which players are helping and hurting their teams the most on defense. We really haven't done a defense-specific TWTW this year, and so I wanted to kind of provide an update. Um, and to do that, we're going to look at defensive runs saved. It's a, uh, a statistic calculated by the Fielding Bible, which is an organization run by John Dewan. We talked about this statistic and organization last year. Um, essentially, defensive run saved, or abbreviated DRS, uh, is similar to wins above replacement. It measures um, how far above or below average you are uh, at defense, and it's measured in uh, runs. So it's cumulative, just like war is. Uh, you, you build up over the course of the season. By the end of the year, if you are at plus 10, uh, that means you're really good. Plus 15 is gold glove caliber. And then obviously, negative 10 is poor, and negative 15 is, is pretty awful. So Pete, do you have any guesses on which players, according to Defensive Run Saved, um, have been the best so far this year? I've got five guys who are all... Uh, plus 15 or better. Uh, Hayward? Hayward is plus 12. Okay. I mean, I don't... Of all the players in baseball? Yeah, just any... Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty big category. How about... Uh, Give me, like, position. A shortstop and a third baseman from the National League West. Um... Trevor Story? Nope. Brandon Crawford is the shortstop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. He's, he's at plus 18. Um, and then third baseman won the Google Glove last year. Yep. Arenado is at plus 15. The leader plays right field <laughs> in Chicago. Not Jason Hayward. It is Adam Eaton. He's been at plus hmm. 21. Uh, and he was actually a below average center fielder last year. Yep. So the move to right has, uh, has really done wonders for him. Kevin Pillar. Center fielder for the Blue Jays is at plus 15. They just traded for Upton, though. That's mm-hmm. Won't he play center now? Yeah. That's a Surprising. Good point. And then Mookie Betts is at plus 15 for the Red Sox. Uh, moving to uh, the negative 15 category, um, the worst 
uh, shortstop and the worst defender in baseball, according to defensive run saved, is Alexei Ramirez. He's at negative 18. Mm-hmm. He's cost his, or he's 18 runs worse than the average shortstop. Brad Miller, he's a shortstop for the Mariners. He's at negative 16. And Danny Valencia, uh, third baseman for the Athletics, is at negative 17. Uh, a few others that are close to that negative 15 category, Jay Bruce, who's on uh, the trading block and will probably be a DH if he goes to the American League, J.D. Martinez and Cameron Mabin, and then Robbie Grossman, an outfielder for the Twins, are all negative uh, 10 or worse. So the is it saying that it's cost their team uh, that many runs, or is it just... From an average player, yeah. So how do they... Like, how do they constitute what? what's a run? Yeah, it's a good or question. Or is it just like a metric? For... I think it's just a metric. Okay. So similar to that, like, how how could you quantify that uh, Jason Hayward is contributing one war to the Cubs, win, one win above a replacement? Okay. So re- really, I think and, uh, the value in it is that it measures uh, a defender's performance compared to the average. And my second question is, I know fielding stats, there's quite a bit of uncertainty whether they're accurate. Mm-hmm. Is this the most credible defensive metric? Yes. Yep. Um, I would say so. Okay. A few... It seems like most, like the worst guys seem like the worst guys and the best guys seem like the best guys. There's yeah. some fielding stats that you look at the leaderboards and you're like, ah. Oh. The one outlier is that Adam Duvall, left fielder for the Reds, who is terrible, uh, is a, he's over plus well, you, 10. You've heard that he's terrible. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you how watched, many Reds games have you watched this year? I watched him in the All Star game and uh, watched a couple highlights of him. You know the Reds, Reds position players pitching have a lower ERA than Reds pitchers pitching. Wow, it's crazy. Uh, a few other notables: several Gold Glove players from last year have actually been below average this year. Mm. Alcides Escobar, uh, shortstop for the Royals, negative nine so far this year, and Cespedes although he's moved to a new position, has been negative six. Hmm. So, um, and another uh, one that caught my eye was Andrew McCutcheon is at a negative six. So you're saying six. Cespedes is a better center, f- center fielder than left fielder? Uh, certainly not. No, I, I mean the position. So he was a gold glove uh, player in left field. He played center last year. Oh, he was a gold glove outfielder. And now he's a left fielder. He played left field before he was traded. But he was center fielder with the Mets. Right, but he won the gold glove in the American League. All right, well, that was CWTW. Next up, Sounds of the Game. All right, this week on Sounds of the Game, we'll do a quick one. Um, the game that we're going to listen to, part of it, is uh, from June eighth, two 2001. The White Sox playing the Cubs. They win in a walk-off in the 10th inning <clears throat> at uh, Comiskey Park. It was called back then. Uh, not U.S. Cellular, U.S. cellular yet. Um, Carlos Lee comes up with the bases loaded in the bottom of the tenth. Uh, I thought this would be appropriate with the Cubs and White Sox playing earlier this week. So here is Hawk Harrelson on the call. That ball hit deep into left field, way back. He looks up. You can't put it on the board. Yes! A grand slam homer by El Caballo, Carlos Lee, and the Sox win it 
here in the bottom of the tenth inning. The first home run Cox has given up on the year. Great Duncan. Who's this Cox fellow? Uh, he screwed up the name. Duncan. Uh, I hadn't heard of him either, but um, Courtney Duncan. Yeah, I do remember that Lee always killed the Cubs. Yeah. Uh, I know we've got a lot of Cubs and White Sox uh, listeners to the podcast, so I'll just go through their lineup. It's pretty quick. Uh, an ode to the throwback box score. Uh, Rest for, in peace. Yep. For the Cubs, Eric Young, Miguel Cairo, Sammy Sosa, Ron Coomer, that's the DH, Rondell White, Julio Zuleta. Zuleta, I forgot about him. Um, he was kind of like the first baseman from Major League, right? Yeah. Well, because of his name. Gary Matthews, Joe Girardi, Augie Ojeda, and Jason Beret. And then for the White Sox, uh, Valentin Singleton. Ray Durham, Maglio Ordonez, uh, El Caballo, Carlos Lee, um, Jeff Leifer in left field, Paul Canerco at first, uh, Sandy Elmar Jr. catching, Royce Clayton at shortstop, and David Wallace started the game at pitcher, but he um, did not retire batter and was pulled after giving up um, just two runs, so it must have been some sort of injury. But the bullpen... Uh, Bullpen pitched well. Um, the Cubs that year went 88 and 74 with Don Baylor as their manager. White Sox were 83 and 79 with Jerry Manuel at the helm. This was the first year of the Kenny Williams era. He was hired in the 2004. And unfortunately, it still continues. Yes, it does. All right. Um, well, that was the sounds of the game. Next up, we have our interview with Grant McCauley. I'm joined now by Grant McCauley, expert on all things Atlanta Braves. Uh, Grant hosts a weekly baseball radio show in Atlanta on 92.9 The Game. And for those not located in the great state of Georgia, you can actually find that podcast under the name Around the Big Leagues on iTunes or Stitcher, and it sounds like maybe uh, Google Play in the near future. Um, You can follow Grant on Twitter at Grant McCauley, and that last name is spelled M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. Grant, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hey, I appreciate you guys having me. Well, Grant, the main thing I want to talk to you about today is this idea of tanking. Uh, Some people prefer to call it by different names, you know, rebuilding, retooling. Um, But essentially the main idea is that you are intentionally bad. You intentionally suffer through two to three years of losing so that you can draft and acquire a young core that will ultimately – uh, make you competitive, and it's happening 
in several sports, you know, basketball as well. But as it relates to baseball, mm-hmm. I thought you would have a great perspective given that you are smack dab in the middle of the, the Braves re- rebuild. So my first question for you is, how do you assess the state of the Braves rebuild? They are the, you know, the worst team in baseball record-wise right now, and it's their third straight losing season. But are you are you confident that they'll be a contender in the next year or two? Yeah, to be honest with you, I mean, it's a really complicated issue. And when I think about the word tanking, I always think first of basketball uh, because you can go into a season. I mean, well, you can look at the 76ers. It hasn't really worked out the way they want it to. But in the past, there have been teams that have been intentionally bad for a year or two, gotten that high draft pick. And when you do that, you get that immediate uh, injection of talent when you get that top player because there is no minor league system in place like baseball has for basketball, sure, you can go play in Europe or you can play in summer leagues and D leagues and whatever, but it's not the, quite the same as the way that you uh, accrue talent and grow your talent through a system which can take three, four, maybe five years. That being said, as far as the Braves are concerned, I don't really put a tanking label on them. I don't put a tanking label on the Astros or the Cubs or some of these other teams that just really kind of wandered in the wilderness for a while because when you have a, a plan, maybe say a five-year plan, and you keep resetting it every two or three years, all of a sudden you realize that you can spend eight, ten, maybe more years not really having any direction whatsoever. So to make a long story short, I look at the Braves' rebuild as being about 50% of the way done. I think they've passed the point where they're just going to trade their best players simply for prospects who might be here in two or three years. I think they're at the point where they're looking for major league-ready talent. I think that's why you see Julio Tehran as being so hard to get and a guy like Freddie Freeman that they don't want to trade as being a building block for them in the future. They want to add to these guys at this point. The Shelby Miller trade, I think, really put them over the top when they got Dansby Swanson, Ender Arte, and Aaron Blair for Miller and a minor league reliever. So once they got to that point where they had been able to get last year's first-round draft pick, they had a tremendous draft class the last couple of years. It may not be next year, but I think within the two- to three-year window, you're going to see a lot more exciting Braves team and a club that can win some more games, sure. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting way of putting it, more about having a, a long-term view in mind as opposed to just a, kind of a two- to three-year um, plan. Right. And I think that's interesting because, you know, several teams, uh, you know, most notably probably the White Sox or the Diamondbacks, who uh, the Braves um, traded uh, Miller to, have chosen to kind of rebuild on the fly and, and have had more short-term plans in mind. And with the White Sox... the Padres in there, too. Yeah, yeah, and... With the Sox and Padres, this has largely been uh, because there's a fear of kind of losing an already shaky fan base, you know, the, with the notion that we're going to be losing for the next three to four years. That's a tough sell uh, to a fan base if they're not already, um, you know, solidly committed. So what is – I'm just curious, what is your sense for the Braves fan base? Have, have they responded uh, well to to the losing? Do they have a sense for – um, what management is thinking, how you just kind of assess um, how they're viewing this? Well, I, I wouldn't say anybody really enjoys the losing. There's no two ways about it. And you're right. It's not easy to market that. And it's not really easy to be as transparent as some fans, I think, just want to hear, want to be told in no uncertain terms, hey, guys, we're going to lose. But if you check back with us in about three years, we might be worth watching again. I mean, you can't <laughs> run a business like that. So you can't really expect a team to come out and say that. But you know, reading the tea leaves or, or what have you, you know, it is a, a process that I think fans may have been timid about to begin with. But over the last couple of years, I see more of a swell in an in interest in what the Braves are doing at the minor league level than there has been 
at any time probably in the franchise's history. But if you flash back to where the Braves were in the late 80s, which is very similar to where they are now, it was a subpar major league product, no question about it. The best player they had was Dale Murphy. He was on the backside of his career. But you started seeing names like Glavin and Gant and Justice and Lemke and Avery, all these guys coming up. And all of a sudden, you know, through that losing, they get a number one overall draft pick, and they hit an absolute home run with Chipper Jones. And, you know, these are the kind of things that all had to come together, but it was not an overnight process. I mean, Trading uh, Doyle Alexander to the Tigers for John Smoltz, that just ended up being a great deal. I don't think anybody could have possibly foreseen how that was going to happen, but it all involved trading something at the big league level that you couldn't really use to get something in the minor league level that you can in the long term. So as far as the fan base is concerned, I I do think there's an understanding of uh, being good for a long time is more the goal than setting up a two- or three-year window, which is what the Padres were trying to do a couple of years ago, I think what the White Sox tried to do you know, over the last two years, and really what the Diamondbacks did uh, over this winter. I mean, they went all in, and they missed on Shelby Miller. And I hope, you know, knowing Shelby, that he's able to get himself back on track. But Zach Grinke was a little bit disappointing early. About the time he got hot, he's been out for a month. Um, losing A.J. Pollock certainly hurt them as well. So even the best laid plans can go wrong because of injury or attrition or a combination of uh, of both those things. So I think the fan base does, for the most part, understand it. It doesn't help with the patience aspect sometimes, and there's always going to be some voices out there that are going to be upset that their team is not, you know, doing everything it can to win every single game, even if it's just being a, a club that's around 500 kind of sniffing at the second wild card but not making the playoffs, it seems like there are some fans out there that would rather just have some modicum of respectability every year than really take a chance and and take a risk and and go all in when it comes to rebuilding. Is there, like, one deal that, as you think back over the last few years, that fans have really uh, reacted poorly to? I mean, you know, obviously the the Miller trade, I think most people understood at the time, like they're getting a great haul, haul back for that. But as you think about the other trades, Simmons being dealt, was there one that fans just kind of uh, didn't understand at the time? I would say the one that has met with the most disappointment, if for lack of a a better term, anger or or resentment or what what have you, Andrelton Simmons trade, there's no question about that. I I think that the the Braves expected that they were getting a respectable big league shortstop in Eric Ibar that would bridge the gap to get you to Dansby Swanson and Ozzie Albies, which, of course, is the grand plan to kind of take the edge off of losing Simmons. That being said, I mean, Simmons, tremendous defender. I mean, you could watch him every single night. He's worth the price of admission by himself with the things that he can do. As a hitter, you know, he was kind of an enigma, and I think that's what the Braves were looking at is how much of a premium do we want to put on defense to the point where we're paying this player 50-plus million dollars over the next five, six years, or can we get something really valuable for him? And the pitcher that they got for him, Sean Newcomb, is a front-of-the-rotation style guy when it comes to stuff, but he's still putting it together command-wise. Eric Ibar, it wouldn't shock me if he's released sometime in the next month or two as the Braves decide to go ahead and turn the page and get into the Swanson-Albies era. Um, and that's kind of the way I look at it. they got another pitcher in there, Chris Ellis, who's been pretty good at A. had a little bit of a tough time thus far at AAA. But I don't think fans were ready to let go of Simmons because he had a, a great personality. He was You gravitated toward him uh, overall in the clubhouse. You could tell he had that passion for the game. And, again, I've never seen another shortstop like him. So when you lose a player like that, that does take the wind out of the sails, no matter what you get back, I think, for fans. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the minor league stuff is a ton of fun. I love player development. I was in the minor leagues, you know, working with the Tampa Bay Rays for a number of years. 
it's fun, but nothing beats winning at the big league level for fans. Sure. As you think about uh, Nancy Swanson, I'm curious because, uh, you know, we're based out of Champaign and played for Vanderbilt last year, and they actually came and uh, played our, our fighting line on Champaign, beat us up, uh, kind of obliterated us in the Super Regional. What do you kind of project him to be? You know, what's, uh, what's the comp for him as he reaches the majors? Is there a guy that you, you know, project okay. him to be like? I've kind of struggled at finding an, an exact comp to uh, to Swanson in terms of the tools, and, and I'm one of those guys that I love the comps, especially around the draft or, or when you do have a prospect like that. Like I know Newcomb, who I just mentioned, I mean, the, the immediate comparison for him is John Lester, and it makes a ton of sense because of their size and their, their uh, skill set and whatnot. When I look at Swanson, he's a great all-around player, and I know John Heyman, of, uh, he tweeted out during the spring that it was Derek Jeter was the name that kept coming up when you talked to Swanson and talked to scouts in terms of you know where he is right now. As far as what the ceiling is, I'm not about to predict he's going to have 3,000 hits and do all the things that Jeter did, though that would be wonderful for the Braves. Um, but that seems to be the, the kind of uh, comparison that you get. He's a, a more than adequate shortstop. He's a guy that, you know, from a leadership perspective, I know a lot's going to be expected of him, and he's been able to show a lot of that throughout his college career and uh, the early impressions of him in the minor leagues. I mean, I've, I've talked to him half, half a dozen times. I've been impressed every single time. This is a kid that gets it. Uh, it's a kid that's going to work hard, and it's a guy that you can build around. So I, I hesitate to second that Derek Jeter comp, but that's the kind of player where it's not necessarily all about speed or power or defense. It's a mix of all those things, I think, that could make Dansby Swanson valuable for a long time. Yeah, he seems to be a guy that uh, just kind of gets it from a baseball sense. My uh, that, that that sticks out to me is he was facing Tyler J, who is now a top prospect for the Twins when he played right. here in Champaign. And uh, his first at bat, he struck out on, on three sliders, um, kind of at his back foot inside. And then the, the next time he came up to bat, he backed off the plate and took – uh, that same sweater uh, out to left field. So he just seems to be a guy that kind of understands and knows the game really well, which would be um, right in line with that Derek Jeter um, comp. Yep. That, that's how uh, you get that. I mean, it's a high high baseball IQ, I think, would be pretty fair to say. Dansby Swanson's got one of those. Sure. Um, well, finally, just to wrap up, uh, and maybe you probably don't get this question uh, too much, but I'm just interested in your personal experience of the Braves rebuild. You know, as a radio host, Jumping, um, jumping on the radio every Sunday night. What has that been like? Obviously, you're going to have a little bit different experience of it than the fans. You're not rooting, so to speak, for the Braves. But, but has it been at all difficult to jump on the air every Sunday night, or has it been pretty easy for you to kind of remain uh, optimistic uh, about your job given uh, just a few years of losing? Yeah, I mean it, it's fairly uh, it's fairly easy. It's pretty straightforward in terms of. I mean, I just try to be realistic about it. And from looking, studying, and like I, I did my first top prospects ranking for the Braves this past year. I mean, I found a lot of projects to, to really connect with what it is that they're doing. And there is a rabid side of baseball fans, a, a large contingent that love looking at prospects and knowing yeah. more about them and that kind of thing. So uh, that's been a huge part of it. Um, just being, I think, realistic about you know where it is, you know, trying to find the the stories that are of note because you're not going to be able to go on every Sunday and be like, well, they lost three out of four, or got swept here, or split this series, and that's the best they can do. I mean, you, you sometimes you got to be a little bit more creative. You got to dig a little bit more to to really get to the root of it. I've also had the opportunity to be in the clubhouse, be around these guys, meet them, talk to them, and really understand kind of where it's going, especially from the young player side. 
uh, there was a managerial change this year. That was a big deal for the Braves because they had not fired a manager since 1990 when Bobby Cox took over for Russ Nixon. So a lot of different things about the Braves uh, have been kind of fascinating storylines throughout the year. And sure, the losing, you know, that the, the whole thing is painted with that brush right now, but that is something that can and will change in the future, I feel like, just based on what they're doing and what they're going to be able to do free agent-wise and the creativity of this front office. And they've been very uh, open and available to me to have the access to interview them, talk to them you know, on and off the record about just whatever might be going on. So from a media perspective, it's it's been a, a lot of fun, I would say. It, it doesn't trump winning, going to the playoffs and that kind of thing. But you know, this is a club that I think took a self-inventory and said, hey, we haven't won a playoff series since 2001. Clearly what we've been doing the last 12, 13, 14 years at that time may or may not be putting us over the top. So let's try something different. It's radical, and it's not over, but it's something that has been really fascinating to cover, I'll be honest with you. Well, I really appreciate your time, and before I let you go, I just got to ask, uh, you know, you've covered baseball for a little while. Have you ever run into a story as weird as uh, Chris Sale cutting up uh, baseball jerseys before a game? No, I, I've heard a lot of random things after the fact and, and seen a lot of guys, you know, voice their displeasure in a number of different ways about a number of different topics, but I can't even imagine what goes through the mind of a player who cuts up an entire team's jersey for the day and expects there to be little to no reprisal. I thought his response, too, his explanation was a little bit curious because he kind of laid the whole thing on Robin Ventura. I mean, this was – it's marketing. Man. This is a business. I mean, you had to wear those for one day. That's all you had to do. He should be lucky, though that they didn't make him wear the shorts that the 1976 White Sox <laughs> also wore, because that would have been more embarrassing. But yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's strange. I don't think it it, it uh, damages his trade value whatsoever, but it, it seems like it's a really strained relationship between Chris Sale and the White Sox, and it, it has to be for something that bizarre to happen. Yes, yeah, certainly a, uh, a dysfunctional situation. But uh really appreciate having you on the podcast, and we will be following you in the future. All right. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Grant one more time for jumping on our podcast. Really do appreciate him taking the time to be with us. We are kind of becoming a, a Braves podcast. We had Daniel Winkler on oh, yeah, earlier right. in the year, and now we had Grant on. Um, but now we will get into bottom of the ninth. First up, Paul, say my name. All right, the name we're going to look at this week, uh, Razor Shines. Does it ring a bell, Pete? Yeah, he's a good player, right? He was not. Is he beloved though? Considered a good player? He no. He played in the 1980s. Uh, he was born in 1956, so that would make him about 60 now. Um, he played for the Expos for five seasons. Uh, for his career, he had 81 at bats, so did not play too much in the big leagues. Had 15 hits in those 81 at bats. Never had more than 60 plate appearances in a season. Um, in 1984, uh, Razor was promoted to AAA Indianapolis, and he would play there uh, really for the next decade. So he became like a an icon in Indianapolis, playing at AAA, which is kind of the first I'd ever heard of a guy. In what years? Uh, from like 1984 to 1994. Okay. I never heard of a guy like making, carving out a career for himself uh, for a minor league team. But the, according to what I was reading, uh, the Expos were just um, 
they had a ton of talent on their big league club, and so there just wasn't uh, an opportunity for him to play very much. Um, so he was a decent minor league player, but never did much in the big leagues. Uh, here's a quote I found in a 1992 interview about uh, him being a kind of a hero in Indy. Uh, Razor <laughs> recalled, this is a quote, I wouldn't go so far as saying this is my town, talking about Indianapolis, but I can walk into the same clothing store as Eric Dickerson or Reggie Miller and sign as many autographs as they do. Wow. Um, so, yeah, he played almost 800 games for the Indianapolis Indians and uh, was a really, really good minor league player, 138 doubles, over 400 RBIs, uh, 70 home runs. Um, but, uh, yeah, so interesting career. He was the third base coach for the White Sox in 2007 as well. So that might be where you've heard of him. Well, he so he's kind of reminded me of <clears throat> Merrill from Signs. Remember him? Oh yeah, I forgot Joaquin about him. Phoenix. He's a failed minor league baseball player. Didn't he like only hit home runs or something? Mm-hmm. He of course defeats the aliens by hitting the gla- the What's water. Swing, swing hard, S- swing away, Mer- swing away, Merrill. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so that's who he reminds me of. He's still alive, obviously. Then. Yes, still alive. Okay. What's he do now? Uh, he worked for the Mets in the earlier part of the decade, but I'm not sure what he's doing now. Okay. My Yahoo answer of the week, uh, piggybacking off uh, Paul's article from out of the box. It's uh, what is the worst trade in baseball history? Um, that question comes from Yahoo user Mitch D. Uh, so a few different answers. Um, the most popular one um, is uh, June 27, 2002, when the Expos trade Grady Sizemore, Cliff Lee, Brandon Phillips, and Lee Stevens to the Indians for Bartolo Colon and Tim Drew. The Yahoo user says, now you know why the Expos and Nationals keep coming in last place. Uh, another one, uh, another answer. There have been several one-sided trades in MLB history, but perhaps the most slop-sided trade was in 1964 when the Cubs traded Lou Brock along with pitchers Jack Spring and Paul Toth to the Cardinals for pitchers Eddie Brogolio and Bobby Shantz along with outfielder Doug Clemens. As everyone knows, Lou Brock had a Hall of Fame career while Ernie Brogolio won only seven more games in his career. Shantz retired after the 1964 season and Clemens only spent one full season in Chicago before finishing his career with the Phillies. And lastly, the trade that Paul mentioned earlier, the Yankees trade Jay Buhner to the Mariners for Ken Phelps. And we will play <clears throat> the outro today will be that uh, the Seinfeld clip where George Cassanza's father is very upset with George Steinbrenner about that trade. I've heard uh, if you actually go back and look at some of the more advanced numbers that Brock's career wasn't as spectacular uh, as many thought it was at the time. Yeah. Kind of came in an era where stolen bases were considered like just as important maybe as like home runs or uh, getting on base. Sure. Okay. Last up we have pick your team. Uh, Paul and I each pick a team every week. Can only pick a team once. And then their record is our record for that week. And a loser of this season long battle has to record our intro song better up by himself during the off season. Uh, we forgot to pick last week. It's my fault. Um, so we're going to do two this week. And we'll, we'll have to do two a few more times to get to 30 teams total. Um, Paul, who are your teams this week? I'm going with the Yankees and the Cardinals. Any reason? Um, 
You know, I'll admit this week uh, it was a bit irrational. I always feel like after teams um, make big trades. It's the Ewing theory, right? Uh, they go on a little bit of a run, similar to when a team fires a manager. I guess the Ewing theory is when a player gets hurt. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I'll go Yankees for that reason. And then the Cardinals, I haven't picked them yet this year, and they're uh, a really good team. So Okay. Uh, I pulled a Paul this week. Strat for time. I did not look into schedules, so I went with the Giants and the Yankees. Uh, so I, I did pick these before you did, so the Yankees canceling each other out obviously is good for me because I'm up nine games. Um, but I'll keep my integrity. So the overall records right now, I'm 61 and 35. Paul is 57 and 44. Okay, well, uh, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure to leave us a review there if you do so. Uh, send us an email at afootinthebox at gmail.com. We'll do some listener emails next week, so please do send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox, and you can check us out online at afootinthebox.com. Paul, you got anything else? Nope. Happy trade deadline, and remember to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week. I can't believe it. He was so young. How could this have happened? Well, he'd been logging some pretty heavy hours. First one in in the morning, last one to leave at night. That kid was a human dynamo. Are you sure you're talking about George? You are Mr. and Mrs. Costanza. What the hell did you trade J.P. in for? <laughs> he had 30 home runs and over 100 RBIs last year. He's got a rocket for an arm. You don't know what the hell you're doing! Well, Kuna was a good prospect, no question about it. But my baseball people love Ken Phelps bat. They kept saying, Ken Phelps, Ken Phelps. Jerry, it's Frankenstein's Mr. Steinbrenner's here. George is dead. Call me back.